when you're thinking about it, it should be something that you can feel in your body. Like you should get excited and start smiling and just thinking about it. You lean forward and you smile and you can't stop smiling. Like that's the awesome stuff. You are listening to Off the Struggle Bus, a podcast where we talk to millennials in public service and experts in personal finance. I'm your host, MJ. With over 10 years in local government, nonprofits, and national campaigns, I'm here to make you feel less alone in getting your money right. Hi, people. This week, we get to talk to David Delisle, author of The Golden Quest. It's a graphic novel that makes learning about money fun. Think Calvin and Hobbes, but core money habits. During our conversation, we discuss ways to teach kids about money, talk about the awesome stuff, how to stop overthinking money, and how we can avoid the trap of lifestyle creep. We're jumping right in. I started talking about it with them when they're young without even realizing. And so a thing I tell, like a lot of parents, is just a conversation around money, just talking about it. Like that's so important. So with my kids as well, people are like, well, what do you teach your kids? Or how do you do this? Or how much are you teaching them? I'm trying not to teach them a lot because I don't want money to consume all their headspace. And then it becomes something you're always thinking about and you're stressing about. Ideally it fades into the background and it's not top of mind. Mm -hmm. But when they're really young, just talking about the value of money. As parents, we want our kids to learn the value of money. And that's a very common theme that most parents want to teach their kids, but we never tell them how much things cost. Mm -hmm. And so we want them to learn the value of money, but there's, it's impossible because we don't even talk about money with them. So when my boys were really young, what I would do, because it's all about just comparison. So even when they couldn't count, I would tell them if they wanted something, okay, this is going to cost 10 chocolate bars or this dinner was you know two lego sets and so they could start to at least because that's how you learn about money it's what could it buy instead like what's the purchasing power of that money so then they could make choices like do you want this this is how much it is or as they got older i started then using numbers so i'd be like when we have a meal this is how much the meal costs or look at the tickets for the movies or the flight costs and it's very tricky to do that without layering in guilt and feeling with it and just as information, like this is what, this is what things cost. So they're just aware because you see kids, like they don't understand. You're like, why don't you appreciate that? I just spent all this money on this fancy dinner. And kids don't understand. They don't know how much that fancy dinner costs or that the steak is more expensive than the chicken or that fast food is cheaper than not. Like they, they don't understand that unless you start telling them and then it starts making sense to them. So even at a young age, I would just start with that. Like it doesn't have to be allowances and anything tricky. Just, Hey, this is how much things cost. Or when they're going to buy something, Oh, this teddy bear, like this one costs two small teddy bears for that one big teddy bear, like just very simple conversation. And then they start understanding money and the purchasing value power and just that value of money that we want to teach them anyway. I never thought about using the comparison for purchasing power. This one big bear costs two little bears. He's very familiar with the concept of big ninja turtle and small ninja turtle. He doesn't have to know math. He doesn't have to know counting. He doesn't have to even understand currency, but just knowing like, what would you rather and see it? Or that ninja turtle is a big cake or this bike is 10 of these or whatever it is. 
just so they start understanding, oh, okay, what would, what would I rather? And you'll see someone, they're like, really? I could have like 10 chocolate bars instead of this? Like, I'll take the candy. Yeah. And who knows what they'll choose. But by having those conversations, they can start really learning that and making those decisions. I mean, that's, that's as early as it can start as really at that age, you know, yeah. one, two, when they start, can, when you can talk to them. I realized a couple of months ago that he would actually watch me as I, because I clean a lot at home and my desk, it, there's always random loose coins. I actually got this coin sorter and realized he liked helping me sort the coins. So now he knows a penny and a nickel and a dime, but obviously he's just learning how to say his ABCs and just learning how to count. When I was a kid, I enjoyed rolling up the coins in the little sleeves, right? And counting that out. Like, oh my gosh, my son also enjoys this. And it's an introduction to money that doesn't say, oh, this is how much something is. Without imposing it, he's having fun playing with currency. This is a way that I can introduce this idea to this two and a half, almost three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. And then as they get older, let them buy their own stuff. So then he has his money. Yeah. And they see what the change is and they count it and it's, it's just that familiarity. I mean, at, at an early age, really, that's all it is. So right now, all the conversations are around how to have more. But this idea of why you want it in the first place is so, so important because that's the only way to break out of always, always wanting more and never having enough. Mm -hmm. And so I try to do that with my boys around this idea of what's your awesome stuff? What lights you up? What's your why? And so that's a lot of the conversation. So it's not around apps and savings. It's when they're getting something, is that your awesome stuff? And recognizing what your awesome stuff is. It's tricky because my older boy, like he was even saying, like all the stuff he likes is so expensive. He's into model trains, he's into aquariums, he's into these little mini figurines. Now he's looking into, you know, some, some nerf stuff that's really expensive. And so he's concerned because all the stuff he likes is expensive. Whereas the younger one, he loves experiences. He likes going to the beach in a sandcastle, doesn't need any money. But just being aware of what that awesome stuff is and what lights you up is so important because then you can start just making educated decisions around what, how you want to frame your life, what's important to you. And that's a really good first step. And then from there, trying to just build in the habits. If they can build in the habits around saving, that's really all of it. I mean, that's 95% of it right there. Saving and investing, you've you've got the system pretty much beat. The rest is, a lot of it is noise. So, so I try not to overcomplicate it much more than that. The awesome stuff also applies to us adults. I mean, for me, I think my awesome stuff is just being able to have breakfast with my kid and like pick them up from daycare and being able to have the time to do that. Yeah. Well, and I was just thinking like that, it's so important. And the reason it's so important, and it, and it is for adults as well, like all these messages actually I wrote for adults. It's just yeah. the kids get them easier. Once you start really figuring out what your awesome stuff is, you'll notice, okay, maybe it is exactly what you just said. And you're like, but I can't do that because my job won't allow it. And so then the question is like, what, if that is what you're passionate about, if that is your awesome stuff, if that's what lights you up, what can you do to have more of that? Or why are you making decisions mm -hmm. that are not allowing it? And that happens a lot, like, especially with us as adults, with what we buy, it's like, this is what's really important to me but this is where I spend all my money. And so why is there that disconnect? So it's just a, just a reframing and that reframing slowly draws you back towards what's really important to you. That's really what it is, is if we're not aware of what's important to us, we drift 
we just go on autopilot. Like habits work both ways. And we just find ourselves in this habit of pursuing things that don't really matter that much to us. And we don't even realize we're doing it, but it's what we should be doing or what everyone else is doing or what we've seen we've been doing or what we think we should be doing. But just pulling back to that. And again, with no judgment, because everyone, their awesome stuff is going to be different. Some people it's freedom, some people it's things, some people it's, you know, eating out or some, it might be certain drinks or mm-hmm. collections, whatever it is. There's no, there's no judgment. It's different for everyone. Yeah. Um, but what I will say is when you're thinking about it, it should be something that you can feel in your body. Like you should get excited and start smiling and just thinking about it. You lean forward and you smile and you can't stop smiling. Like that's the awesome stuff. It's almost like a holistic approach to thinking about finance, right? Because so often people are like, oh, I have to track my spending. Oh, I have to do this budget. Oh, I have to clean up and automate and all the, it's like the task list then becomes burdensome. And then the thing you thought would give you freedom or would, you know, help you save more, change how you're spending. It just gets overwhelming and you get clouded and lose sight of the awesome thing that you're trying to shoot for. Yeah. Envy sort of disappears a bit and comparison starts to disappear and gratitude comes in because again, if you're pursuing the awesome stuff, like you, you start being grateful for those things. So like you said, if, if your awesome stuff is having breakfast with your child, the more you're aware of it, every morning when you do that, you're like, ah, oh, like this feels so amazing. You're not thinking about the thing you wish you could have. You're like, no, I, I, this is what's important to me and I have it already. So it really does extrapolate into all these different areas and settle. And then as far as the finance part, really those habits. So instead of the budgeting, like budgeting is so, so tricky. We all sort of struggle with it. So the idea of like automating that, paying yourself first and just having that be automatic that you don't even see the saving happen. We all quickly adjust to what we have, either more or less. It just happens naturally a lot quicker than we think it does. Mm. So if you're in that habit, you don't even realize it. Like we don't, most people don't realize how much they're paying towards taxes and the government. It's just automated. It just comes right off their paycheck. They don't realize how much is gone. So they're just used to it. And that's with everything. So if you do the same with your savings and then that invested compounds, the rest, the rest isn't as important because we're pretty good we're pretty good at sort of hitting close to what we have. What we're really bad at is having anything left over that. I actually want to switch gears to FinCon because to your point about how your awesome stuff is supposed to make you feel, right? I didn't expect FinCon to make me feel as alive as I did. And I mean, this was my first one. Was it your first one as well? Yeah, it was my first as well. So... Yeah, yeah, I've done so- it. Vir- I did it virtually during COVID. It just it, even then, I knew it wasn't the same. How was your first FinCon experience, and how did it help you? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Just one, because I've always been a money nerd, so it's so nice to just go to have a conversation with someone and not have to like watch them watch the boredom as soon as you start talking about money or finances <laughs> yeah. and getting some of those ideas. Like that was nice. One interesting thing that came out of it, which was peculiar for me. So I'm a Canadian and FinCon's in the States. Most of the attendees were American, 
the very few Canadians I ran into, it was really interesting, were all focused on financial literacy for kids, oh. which was really interesting. So we realized how much of a gap there is right now in teaching financial literacy to kids. So from this FinCon, we decided to try to host our own conference next year, dedicated towards families and make this an event where the whole family can come, children, grandparents, and basically learn about money. So that, for me, from FinCon was a big takeaway as this thing that sort of was birthed there. Hey, I'd go to Canada for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then ideally what we do do is then obviously doing the proof of concept there and then branching it out and having it as, you know, a regular event across North America. Because it's one of those things where I could see it in all these major cities, bringing in the families and making it a one or two a day event. Usually when we talk about money, people think of math and all these other macroeconomics and what's happening with the economy and risk. It just seems too overwhelming. But just simplifying it to what are the few things you really need to know? And it's a lot less than people think because all those details, like I love those details. The people at FinCon love those details. But most people who invest don't actually know even what they're invested in. They go to someone for help. They basically say, here's my risk tolerance and let someone else do the investing for them. The complexity isn't there for most people who invest. And that's what I want to get out there to people. If you're not a money nerd, don't worry. You can still really manage your finance as well. So now I'm curious, in Canada, is there, is finances part of like elementary school and middle school and high school curriculum? No, like we don't, we don't teach it in schools in Canada, just like you don't teach it in the oh. States. Like, yeah. And not only that, families in Canada don't talk about money either. So most people aren't, most people aren't talking to their kids about how much things cost, how much they've saved, how much they earn, how much their car is. It's, you know, it's one of those taboo subjects. In almost all cultures, we don't talk about money. Yeah, same. Yeah. Are you familiar with Tiffany Alice, the budgetista? No. One of the amazing money people I follow and is, I think, one of the reasons I also found out about FinCon because she has a podcast, Brown Ambition. But it's interesting because she lives in New Jersey, literally two towns away from me. And... I admire her so much because I don't know if it's complete yet, but she's advocating to mandate middle schools to teach financial literacy here in New Jersey. And so that's why I was like, wait a minute, is Canada different and better? And they actually teach this because we're just getting it into the curriculum now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, you might even be ahead. I think a few of the states are mandating it. As far as I'm aware, we haven't really mandated it yet. And part of it is because no one knows how to teach it because we've never as adults we've never been taught it all we know is what we learn from our parents and most of the time that's not good money habits or if anything it's damaging so yeah it's just coming into play which is why for me this whole financial literacy for kids is so important because it's not the end top but if you think of young kids like as an adult if you started investing when you're like 10 or even 20 how much that would grow and where you'd be how much better off you'd be financially today yeah. if someone had just taught you those lessons because really that time is so much more valuable than anything else and that's what our kids have that we don't have as adults and yet we don't really teach them anything about it i'm excited to be able to be a parent to talk to my kid and set him up while he's so young right i think it's just so fascinating how there's such a lack in financial literacy training. And 
almost like the lack in civic engagement training too in schools because they go hand in hand, right? Like if you're controlling your money, you're able to contribute more to the world. I only teach four lessons in my book. And the fourth lesson is it gives and you'll have more. Yes. Yeah. So and yes, I'm all for that. <laughs> you're talking to somebody who's been in the public sector for almost 15 years at this point. And we deal so much with money and politics, but then it's so funny because the people who manage the money and politics are also kind of living paycheck to paycheck despite some big salaries. I have a bunch of friends that are like executive directors and C-suite folks, and they're making like two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000, but because of their student loans, because of the big houses, because of all of that, it's fascinating to see. And I'm like, wait, how do I not also fall into that trap and rebuild my finances and also be able to save for my son, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's why some of the mindset pieces are so important because there is that chase. Like... It always feels like if you had more, you'd be fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're in that chase, and I've been there myself, there you never reach that point. Because as soon as you get more, you're like, okay, well, now I can afford more. And so you just ramp up your lifestyle. Like this lifestyle inflation just automatically happens. And you just build this bigger and bigger thing that's more and more expensive to maintain. And you're just as stressed about money because just to carry your monthly household debt becomes so, so high that you have to make those big incomes just to carry it. You see it with professional athletes and actors and actresses and all these people. It has nothing to do with how much you make because spending money is easy. And there's a million ways to spend money. Yeah. It's really what you're doing with that money and how much you're saving. And budgeting is just as hard with a lot of money as not a lot because it's just, there's more things you just, you don't even realize what's happening. You just create a bigger and bigger expense for yourself. Yeah. And, you know, folks think about, oh, I'm just going to change my, my job and jump and get more, a bigger salary. And then I'm having the same conversations with my friends of like, oh, no, how do we make ends meet? It would be rare to meet someone that gets a bigger salary and does not increase their lifestyle cost. And that's the whole thing. Like, as soon as we get more, we spend more. And that's why building those habits of just automating the saving, it, it fixes that entire piece. So even if you got more and you spent more, if at least 20% right off the top was saved, it wouldn't matter that you're still creeping up that lifestyle inflation. It puts enough of a cap on it that in terms of like your investments, your saving, your finances, they're looked after enough that you shouldn't have to worry about spending all the rest and living paycheck to paycheck if you've already saved 20% right off the top. That will, over time, compound, grow, and cover all of your costs. Yeah, so automating the savings can help offset the lifestyle creep of bonuses and increased salaries. Okay, this, is, this could be helpful for a lot of folks yeah. listening. <laughs> Well, so if you think, so the stock market has traditionally returned, say, 10%. And I just like that because it's a round number. If you were getting a 10% return on average and investing for a longer term, that's a lot easier to achieve. And you were saving 20%, within 20 years, that would grow to a point where it, was, it would be earning more than you earned yourself. Mm -hmm. 
and it's all relative. So it doesn't matter how much you make or how little you make, it's all relative. So by putting 20% away within 20 years in the stock market, the way it's performed traditionally, you would have enough invested that if you stopped working, your investments itself would cover how much you're earning. Because they continue to grow because compound interest. Because compound interest. So every year, how much that generated and returned would be your salary every mm -hmm. year. So we think of retiring 65 or older now, that's within 20 years you could achieve financial freedom. And without a lot of pain, that's not making bagged lunches and biking to work. Like that's just saving 20% of everything you make, doing nothing else, spending all the rest on anything you can think of. And within 20 years, you can be financially free. I think I've been so intimidated by the fire movement because at least on the surface, I'm not able to cut as much as the general recommended cutting. In your point of view, is there a way to create wealth that could maybe be the most reliable for a family? Yeah, yes, 100%. Okay, and that's, 100%. <laughs> and that's why, so for myself, I've done all this stuff. Like I've, I've done day trading, I've invested in real estate, I've done stocks, I've done bonds, like across the board, like mutual funds, like I was investing in this stuff when I was 11. And so I, I remember reading books on who the best advisors were and trying to follow them. But really what it comes down to is not stock picking and not market timing. Because yeah. even the best investors, even the ones who outperform for like 10 years, 20 years, over a long period of time, there's almost nobody who has ever outperformed the stock market over a long period of time. Even you think of like someone like Warren Buffett. I mean, he's underperformed the stock market the last few years. And he's known as one of our greatest investors of all time. Now, over time, for sure, he's done incredibly well. But the thing is, is the averages of the stock market are really, that really is the best it gets. Mm -hmm. So the whole game is trying to hit those averages. So instead of trying to stock pick, buy the entire stock market. And so we've got index funds that allow us to do that now, which didn't used to exist, but now it's easy to buy an entire stock market. And then as far as market timing, instead of wondering like, are we about to hit a recession now? Are we on the way up? I've been thinking we were going to hit a recession in the last few years, hands down, like it's, we're way overdue. But I've been saying this for years, I would have been better off just buying the market all the way up as it's been going up this whole time. And eventually, yes, the rug will be pulled out from under us. But if you're always investing, then you get that average. So instead of trying to hit the peaks or the valleys, if you just are always investing regardless, irregardless, it doesn't matter. You'll get that average. So whether or not we're in a downturn, if it is a downturn and you're buying into it, you'll still average out. So you don't hit the bottoms, you hit the average. And that's the best way. So an index fund, investing regularly and just letting your money just sit like that is the easy, easiest, most passive way to make money hands down. The problem is it feels too easy. So then we want to tinker with it, myself included. And I try to tinker with it, but usually we make things worse by doing that. And best case scenario, we don't make things worse. They're just the same, but we stress ourselves out over something that shouldn't have been stressful. Just 
set it and forget it. And again, back to Warren Buffett, that's what he recommends his estate does. When he's, when he's passed, he's recommended his estate just invest in the entire, like these index funds, the entire stock market and just let it sit and do its thing. So that's the easiest way, hands down. All the rest is, is noise. So we hear about coin and NFTs, like people have made a lot of money doing all this and they're not bad investments. Like people have made a lot of money, but to set it and forget it and let it just do its thing over the next 40 years, you can't. Like those are not, those are risky investments, especially if you don't know what you're doing. So yeah. the simplest way is just entire stock market, get a, you know, seven to 10% average return. And over time, like your money's going to be doubling every seven or 10 years. Yeah. which with time adds up fast. The problem is, is people want to retire in like two years. That's a little trickier. And that's yeah. where the fire movement is in this game of like, how fast can I retire? Um, which isn't bad and that works for those people. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to hit a destination and be done. Yeah. I'd rather figure out how I want to live my life and just live my life. So I'm not in a rush to hit, okay, I fired at whatever, three years and now I do nothing. I'd prefer to, view it as you know this gradual thing that never ends yeah with my young boys I don't want them to be so overly consumed with finances and money and sometimes if all you're thinking about is extreme frugality and how much things cost and cutting wherever you can and feeling all the pressure and the guilt and the emotion around every purchase you're actually ultra sensitive in your, about money and your your awareness around it is heightened Whereas I prefer that it fades into the background and all of a sudden your decisions are based on what's your awesome stuff, not what are your finances. Yeah, I, I love how you're thinking about it, that for finances to fade into the background because it's such a big part of your life that it's as important as knowing what food you put into your body. It's what's yeah. sustaining you. It's literally what's sustaining you outside of the food you eat and how you care for yourself, right? Uh, when that's automating the saving, putting in the, like an index fund that you don't have to stock pick, doing it regularly. And that's it. Yeah. It will fade into the background and over time it'll grow. So all of a sudden now you're not stuck. So even with that, even before you reach financial freedom, pure, like hundred percent financial freedom, as that money grows, now you have more flexibility. Maybe you could afford a job that you love more, but doesn't pay as much. Maybe you could do a sabbatical. Maybe if, you know, your car breaks down or a parent is sick, you have the finances to pull on that. You're not stressing on where to get it. So the freedom that comes from starting that journey and just letting that money start to grow is incredible. And, and it happens fairly fast because I don't see it as like 20 years and then do nothing. I see it as, you know, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and your freedom and flexibility just continually increases and you don't worry about the finances because there's money there if you need it. Yeah, I love the Warren Buffett angle too of let's not overthink this. <laughs> yeah. I work in a world of politics and we overthink so much. The public sector can th overthink too much and make it complicated. Yeah. Think of your son. He's in his teens and starts working and just gets in the habit of 20% of everything he earns going to the side. By the time he's 40, because his money's already covering as much as he earns anyway, he has all the freedom in the world and he keeps working. But if he wants to choose a job, he can, if he doesn't, if he wants to travel, like he has all that freedom Yeah. by the time he's 40 without even thinking about it. 
and it's all relative. It doesn't make matter if he was making 25,000 a year or 500,000 a year. It's all relative. That lifestyle, whatever he's become accustomed to is, is being covered. And then all of a sudden, now you start looking at work where you're not stressed and picking jobs where I hate this job, but I know it pays more. So that's the career I'll go through. You just, you just see the world a little bit differently. Yeah. If you're able to put 20% of your paycheck away into a, an index fund or something like automated, that yeah. grows. And, and you don't even notice it. It just happens. Yeah. And that's less than you're putting away right now for taxes. A lot less. Yeah, that's true. I know. I've seen my taxes and it hurts. <laughs> it hurts a lot. That's why it's so important for me to teach these lessons to my boys because I didn't want them to grow up worried about money all the time and thinking about money all the time and be overly sensitive about how much things cost and making decisions based on how much they cost versus what really lights them up and what they want to be doing and where they want to pursue their passion. I found myself, especially being a money nerd, very caught up in money. I'm very aware and overly heightened. And that's why money is like one of the number one stressors. It's because what, it's what most people think about the most. Mm. I mean, how sad is that, that that's the thing that we think about the most. I mean, there's so many other things that we should be thinking about that are much more amazing. And I didn't mean to say should, but in this case, <laughs> no, cool. I mean, money's not, money's not bringing us joy. It's all these other things that <laughs> really are. So oh, good. sorry for no. dropping that should, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there's, there, I'm sure for most people, there's things that are, that bring them more joy, even with money. It's the things that you think you can buy or that you want to buy. It's what money means to you, not the money itself that brings joy. And mm. yeah, it's what we always think about. What caused you to be a money nerd then if finances weren't taught in schools? <laughs> when I first realized money could be a tool and make money. So when mm. I realized that I could put money in a bank account and earn interest, I didn't know about compounding at the time, but as a little boy knowing that like a dollar and I go and check and now it's a dollar 10 or dollar 20 and I didn't do anything. And it's just every time I check it's worth more. That just fascinated me. I think some of it as well, my dad really didn't love his work. Mm. And so seeing that, it just struck me as like, hmm, there's, there's got to be another way. And if you don't love your work, like, is, why are you doing this? Is there a job that you'd like more? Or if you had more money, would you work less? Or what is it? And, and so it's just sort of fascinating with the idea of like, money becoming a tool and doing the work for you. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't know why that stuck as a young, young boy, but I, it, it always did stick. And, and it was almost this idea of fire before it was a fire movement of this idea of like money working for you and then having that freedom to do the things you love is how I always saw it. Okay. So I am doing three things after this conversation with David. One, Focus on my awesome stuff. I really do love my mornings and evenings with my son, JJ, and everything I do is for him. Two, automate investing into index funds. 20% might not be possible at the moment, but I actually now have a number to shoot for. We'll get there. Three, stop overthinking. Okay, this one's a little bit of a cop-out, but once I can get to a place where money is in the background, I'll be better off. What you all can do is check out David's work. 
go to theawesomestuff.com and get his book, The Golden Quest. It's a money book that kind of feels like Calvin and Hobbes. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to share it with a friend. Also, follow me at MJ underscore OTSB and follow David at The Awesome Stuff. We're both on Instagram. Tag us. As always, you're not alone in figuring out your personal finance. I'm MJ and we're getting off this struggle bus together. Until next time.